Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5 and stand for the reading of our passage this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the Apostle Paul is writing to Pastor Timothy, helping him bring order to the church, order to the people of God. In particular, uh, Timothy is at the church in Ephesus, so a local body. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote of the ordained offices of the church, elder and deacon, and what qualifications must be met for men entering those offices. And then chapter 4 focused on Timothy's discipline or how he, as a pastor, was to show himself an example in his work. And then chapter 5 moved to the care of widows and the enrollment of widows on the widows list that we looked at the last couple of weeks. And now in the second half of chapter 5, he returns to the topic of elders and particularly the people's relationship to the elders, the congregation's relationship to the elders. Just like widows are to be honored, Paul writes that elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Um, Elders who rule well are to be considered not not simply worthy um, or, or of honor, but to be uh, considered of double honor, he writes. As I said last time, the Holy Spirit is, I, I think in these passages in chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is calling us to honor our fathers and mothers. He's echoing the fifth commandment in this section. An outworking of that commandment is that we honor widows who are widows indeed and elders who rule well. Mothers and fathers, the mothers and fathers of the congregation, the enrolled widows and the elders. These two classes of people are certainly our fathers and mothers spiritually. So how are we to show 
our fathers and mothers honor. And in particular, the elders, how are we to show them double honor? Um, If you look at the Greek in this section, the Apostle Paul is using the word honor and, and double honor in a particular way. What he's essentially saying is that not only must you honor or reverence the uh, well-ruling elders, but you must honorarium the elders, uh, particularly those who preach and teach, as he says in the second half of the first verse we looked at. So he's saying honor and honorarium the, those elders. So he's talking about reverencing and paying. He's talking about those two things, reverencing and paying your elders. Now, notice that he singles out a particular kind of elder. This is one of several passages, perhaps the most important, that make a distinction between elders who rule and elders who teach and preach. Um, That's a distinction that is set down in our polity, in our book of church order. Uh, There are elders who rule, whose education is general, and whose vocation is outside the church. And then there are elders who preach and teach, who have been trained specifically for the ministry, and whose vocation is in the church. They are provided for by the church. I think what the Apostle Paul is doing here is is drawing a connection between the, the enrolled widows who worked in the church, remember, and were compensated as they cared for the poor, and the teaching elders, let's call them pastors, okay, and the pastors um, who worked within the church and were compensated for care for doing the spiritual work, caring for uh, those in the church. In verse 18, the apostle quotes uh, a few passages, one from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4, and one from Jesus. So Paul here is quoting Jesus' scripture. Take note of that. It's Luke 10.7. And in Paul doing that, he's happily drawing an analogy between a pastor and an ox. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. The meaning of these quotes is obvious. When the ox is threshing, when it's working, its its mouth is not to be covered in a muzzle so that it can eat, it can nourish itself while it works. Um, And the quote of Jesus is from Luke 10, when the 70 are sent out to minister in his name, and they're sent out with these words, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he tells them to find a worthy home to lodge in. And that's when he says, Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Those 70 were to be honored by compensation for the spiritual work they were doing. So the apostle is exhorting the church in Ephesus to care for those who are giving themselves to the spiritual good of the members of that body. Now, of course, you know that this isn't the only place where Paul goes down this path. Um, He does so with the Corinthian church as well. He says this, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So the same quote, same verse, same application of that. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? He is, but 
Paul's point is, I've got a bigger point to make. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If we sowed spiritual things, is it too much that we would receive physical, material things? Some churches are more are much more willing to show kindness to their animals at home, really, than they are to their pastors at their church. Um, it's an undeniable truth that it's an undeniable truth that where our money is allocated, where our money is spent, shows us what we honor. Right? Where our money goes shows us what we honor. Um, if you spend thousands of dollars a year on season tickets for the Clemson Tigers you know what you honor, right? Um, you, without a doubt, honor Dabo and crew, and, and I guess on a certain level, they're honorable. Um, if you allocate 25% of your salary to retirement, you honor retirement. That's what you honor. Uh, you wouldn't deny it. I wouldn't deny it either. After paying your bills, if the rest of your money goes to your small business, you honor your business. That's what you are trying to do. Where our money goes, then, is a great barometer of what we honor. If you're generous to those in need, guess what? You honor those in need. You honor those in need. If you're generous to yourself, guess what? You honor yourself. Uh, it's very simple. If you are generous to your pastor in the church, guess what? You honor your pastor in the church. And, and this is probably as good a time as any um, for me to mention my thanks for your care for my family, and for myself. Um, particularly this summer when I was on sabbatical, I was able to rest for two months, and I was paid by the church, and many of you covered the expenses for the sabbatical. I mean, that was wonderful graciousness. It, it blew our minds. It made us very thankful. Um, we had food and rentals and, and much more. Covered. So thank you for honoring your pastor, and, and, but more so, thank you for obeying the commands of Scripture. Thank you for obeying the commands of Scripture. Now, now I'll say, excel still more. Excel still more. Uh, in your bulletin, you'll notice on the bottom of the second page that we have collected about 80% of our budget for this year. Honor the church and honor her elders by getting that figure up to 100% by the end of the year. Um, we'd essentially need to bring in $40,000 this month. Um, I mean, is this awkward to talk about? Uh, isn't this a good application of this verse? Isn't this a, a perfectly fine and acceptable application of this verse? Um, of course it is. Can we finish this year by honoring the church by giving more generously toward her needs. She and her elders have been caring for your spiritual needs. The elders have been caring for your spiritual needs. Is it too much if we reap material things from you? Um, in other words, giving is a means of investing in your own spiritual growth, right? Both in obeying God's commands and in providing for those who give you spiritual food. 
Um, There's another way we are to honor elders. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 3, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, that is the same standard that we use for any brother or sister in Christ, isn't it? That's the same standard. Um, Deuteronomy 19.15, which is the standard we use for church discipline along with Matthew 18, says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of an iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be confirmed. Right? So a man, anybody, any person is only accused not on the basis of one witness. You know, this is, this is a standard of, of uh, this is a level of, of um, proof that we even hold to in our secular courts, right? Um, that, that verse and that standard also applies to pastors, okay? Because pastors are engaged in fighting sins, because pastors are engaged in fighting personal sins and cultural sins for that matter, they often become the focus of slander in the church. Of course, there are some elders and pastors who sin grievously, and we've had to discipline and defrock some at Presbytery. But regardless, the warning here is that the standard for making an indictment against a pastor is not less than that of others. Um, there will be many individuals who have a bone to pick against, many individuals will have a bone to pick against the pastors and elders. I've been the recipient of so many phone calls with people accusing me of things you would never believe. Um, I've, received, I've received dozens of anonymous letters in my pastoral ministry. Anonymous letters accusing me of terrible things that are completely untrue. Completely untrue. Um, I've received the rebukes of brothers who love me concerning things that are true. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I've been hit for sins that I need to be hit for. I've heard other people repeat to me accusations that they heard from others that were not true. Um, But here's the standard. Two or three witnesses must confirm sin of elders and pastors. Two or three witnesses. Doug Wilson on this passage says this. This is a sinful world, and it's the minister's job to attack sin. When sin fights back, as it often does... It will do so in the form of lies and slanders. John Calvin once said that none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. Because this is true, extreme care must be taken in receiving accusations against them. This is not because they cannot sin, but there must be a starting presumption that they have not. A charge must not even be entertained if there are not two or three witnesses and anonymous blog sites don't count. So it's up to the rest of us not to go that way so many people do when it comes to treating their elders without honor. We must be willing to follow this rule. When it comes to their sins, they are held to the same standard as all others. Um, They are not held to a lesser standard. I've known many pastors who have been run out of town because... His elder board entertains every rumor started by any reputable or non-reputable person in the congregation. 
So every elder board meeting becomes dealing with a rumor that's started by one person in the congregation. Person A makes an accusation because they didn't like what pastor said to them about their use of money. The elders start an investigation. Pastor B makes an accusation because they didn't like what advice pastor gave to their wayward, rebellious daughter. The elders start an investigation of the pastor. Pastor C makes an accusation because they didn't like how pastor corrected their five-year-old son in the narthex, the foyer, the hallway. The elders start an investigation and put in place a monthly review of every one of the thoughts of the pastor. He must be run by the session before he says anything. These accusations without other witnesses. These independent single accusations without other witnesses should simply be dismissed outright. It should never, ever even be, be dealt with in an official sense. I've known men who have just gone from accusation to accusation to accusation, most of which are unfounded or unwitnessed by others, and they simply get so fatigued with not being able to do what they came to the church to do that they just leave for greener pastures. I mean, all of us could probably think of four or five pastors who have been treated in that way. And we could also think of pastors who sinned grievously against their congregations. And it would be far less than those who were treated poorly and forced out. So Paul is saying, remember, this letter is going to be read out loud. This is not a personal letter to Timothy. This letter is going to be read out loud to the church. So Timothy, Paul, is, Paul has got Timothy's back. In, in saying these things publicly to the congregation. He is he's helping Timothy out here. Now, in addition to the standard, there's a peculiar or a particular way uh, that those elders who have sinned, okay, that's where Paul goes next, who have sinned, it's proven, it's upheld by witnesses, it's gone through the official, the official uh, courts of the church, and continue in sin are to be dealt with. Now, even as I just got done saying, you know, um, pastors, pastors get treated poorly often. Now I'm going to go on and say pastors should be disciplined hard, really harshly when they sin. Okay? He says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful or fearful of sinning. Presumably, this applies to those elders, and the rest applies to the rest of the elders, right? But certainly, what applies to the rest of the elders as a group applies to the whole body by extension. Elders who are caught in sin and have been exhorted and have not repented are to be rebuked publicly, publicly. They who are the service of the church and publicly those servants are to have their sins dealt with publicly. Um, Why? Why? So that other elders and all might be fearful, fearful of sinning, of whom much is given, much is expected, right? In James chapter 3, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. A stricter judgment. And part of that stricter judgment is the public rebuke that comes along with sinning in that office. 
The other thing that comes out of this is that there is a sense in which the public rebuke of sin, some of which are crimes, serves to cause fearfulness in others. Right? We've sort of lost the sense of this. The rebuke of others, the rehearsing of the consequences of their sinful actions causes all of us to be introspective about our own actions, or it should. Um, This is part of the reason why there should be a death penalty for murder. Right? It reminds people of God's justice in punishing those who take the life of his image bearers. It reminds people of the heinousness of their actions. And it reminds people that if they begin to get angry and they kill somebody, right, the same thing's going to happen to them. They are going to die. It warns people to not, not to go on sinning. Of course, this is why the Romans crucified people, isn't it? It asserted their power. It warned others that that was their future if they went in a similar way. Not so with Jesus Christ, though, right? Because he rose from the dead and denied them their power. We have so sanitized everything that we will not even practice church discipline behind closed doors, uh, let alone in public. I've never been more sobered than when I have had to deal with somebody else's sins. It puts the fear of God in you. It really does, and I've never been more helped in a worship service than when I've witnessed an excommunication and a restoration of the excommunicated person publicly. Generally, every every excommunication that I've seen has been for sins, think of this, have been for sins that I've committed myself. Every excommunication I've seen have been for sins I myself have committed. Rebelling against authority, check. Quite a bit of that in my life. Um, Sexual sin, check. Quite a bit of that in my life. Unbelief, check. Quite a bit of that in my Christian walk. How helpful it is, therefore, to see the punishment fall on those who commit those sins and commit them again and refuse to repent. How helpful is that? How wonderfully helpful it is is to repent, to stop sinning when we see somebody put out of the fellowship of the church, handed over to Satan for not repenting for the sins that I myself have committed and repented for. Or perhaps there are things I haven't committed, but it reminds me that I'm capable of committing. Next, look at verse 21. The Apostle Paul lays a solemn obligation upon Timothy, an oath. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. And that would be a solemn oath right there. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And that would be really solemn. And of his chosen angels. So this is a a solemn, solemn, solemn oath. To maintain these principles, the principles he's just laid out, without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In other words, be principled. Don't be one who goes about always figuring out who a person is or who he or she is connected to or what you can get out of him if you maintain such a friendship. Right? A spirit of partiality causes a man not just 
not to be just, but to be biased. Spirit of partiality. You'll go about being biased. Um, you know, much of the church today is biased toward rich, man, rich men and writers of books. If you've written books of theology, there's no wrong you could possibly do. How many search committees would rather have a man who writes books than a man who will invite them into his home and address their hurts and pains and sins, sort of dig into their lives? Many churches just would much rather have the writer of books. pastor can stay in his, his uh, dungeon and write with his little lamp on, and I'll be safe. Uh, that is the way many and most churches, I would say, go. You know this is true. Um, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. We'd rather have a man who has a spirit of partiality toward our demographic, whatever our demographic happens to be, than be a man of principle. In other words, we want a man whose pride matches our own. His pride exactly matches our own. Baxter wrote this in 1656, right? And so what I'm trying to get you to see is this is not like a new problem. This, the, the problem we see ourselves in is something that the church has always faced. Baxter wrote this. One of our most heinous and palpable sins is pride. This is a sin that has too much interest in the best of us, but which is more hateful and inexcusable in us than in other men. He's addressing pastors. Yet, is it so prevalent? Yet, it is so prevalent in some of us that it indicts our discourses, it chooses our company, it forms our countenances, it puts the accent and emphasis upon our words. It fills some men's minds with aspiring desires and designs. It possesses them with envious and bitter thoughts against those who stand in their light, or who by any means eclipse their glory, or hinder the progress of their reputation. Oh, what a constant companion. What a tyrannical commander. What a sly and subtle insinuating enemy is the sin of pride. It goes with men to the draper, the mercer, the tailor. It chooses them their clothing, their trimming, their fashion. Fewer ministers would ruffle it out in the fashion and hair and habit if it were not for the command of this tyrannous voice. And I would that this were all or the worst. But alas, how frequently does it go with us to our study and there sit with us and do our work? How often does it choose our subject and more frequently still our words and ornaments? God commands us, to be as plain as we can, that we may inform the ignorant, and as convincing and serious as we are able, that we may melt and change their hardened hearts. But pride stands by and contradicts all and produces its toys and trifles. It pollutes rather than polishes, and under pretense of laudable ornaments, dishonors our sermons with childish gauds, as if a prince were to be decked in the habit of a stage player or painted a fool. It persuades us, listen to this as he goes on, I'm not going to stop. It persuades us to paint the window that it may dim the light, and to speak to our people that which they cannot understand, to let them know that we are able to speak unprofitably. If we have a plain and cutting message, it takes off the edge and dulls the life of our preaching under pretense of filing off the roughness, the unevenness, the superfluity. When God charges us to deal with men as for their lives and to beseech them with all the earnestness that we are able, 
This cursed sin controls all and condemns the most holy commands of God and says to us, What? Will you, will you make the people think you are mad? Will you make them say you rage or rave? Cannot you speak soberly and moderately? And thus doth pride make many a man's sermons. You know, I find, I find this kind of spirit of partiality so prevalent in church today. A partiality toward oneself, one's own kingdom, one's own ministry, one's own reputation that we don't even recognize it. I see it in myself all the time. I see this in myself all the time. It's, a, it's the sea that we swim in in today's culture. And the worst practitioners of this are our celebrity preachers, your favorite preachers, your favorite book writers, your favorite international ministry leaders, the men who get invited to write statements like the Nashville Statement. The, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy with solemn language, with this oath, don't ever be that kind of man. Don't ever be that kind of man, this kind of servant of self rather than a servant of the church. Don't ever be the kind of man who adapts what he says according to the worldly power and prestige of the person he's talking to. Do not show partiality. Ever. And the Apostle Paul writes, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. The apostle reminds Timothy that the elders must be godly, above reproach, but also that he must concern himself with those who are becoming elders. Men can be put into office of elder too hastily. They can be put in too quickly. And you know why that is usually done. Well, we put a man who has worldly wisdom and prestige in the eldership and overlook the man who has real spiritual wisdom. We, we play partiality. And the man that's respectable in the eyes of the world will, will quickly rush into the office to retain his, his, his portion in the church. We put a successful man on the session. We do so quickly because we want to retain his attention We take a man's worldly credentials and refuse to put him to the test to make him go through training to prove himself as a godly man because we want to keep him around. That shouldn't be. That should not be. We must have men who have proven ability, godliness, commitment to the church, wisdom, etc. to serve the church as pastors and elders. Um, we We just put up our new nominees for office we just put them through about a hundred hours of work, classes, exams, interviews, to 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 get some to to get a good picture, right? I think they would all tell you that it was rigorous, that it was a test. Their wives were also put to the test, and God uh, God worked through that process. It was wonderful. Uh, We intend to not be hasty, and we pray that it will yield good spiritual fruit in the church. Then we get to this wonderful statement of concern by Paul. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I wonder if Paul was combating some teetotalers in the church. Knowing this is going to be read out loud, he tells Pastor Timothy to take a little wine. Um, 
though teetotalers probably didn't exist then. But there were those that we read about in the previous chapter, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So perhaps Paul, knowing this letter would be read publicly, gives Timothy impetus to drink wine, combating the ascetics in the church. Um, Beyond that, we learn that, I think we learn from this passage, that medicine is not forbidden the Christian. Medicine is a gift from God. There are some who reject all medicine and believe that healing must be a matter of faith. But here, Paul is commending something from creation that would lead to a physical benefit for Timothy. Wine, as opposed to that dirty, corrupted water. Wine, wine with that purifier alcohol would be helpful for Timothy's stomach. And not just his stomach, frequent ailments, it says. I think... He had Crohn's disease. That's what I think. But I'm biased. Regardless, Timothy, it seems he he had serious ailments. He was a sickly guy. And Paul says, use some means to alleviate this. Alleviate these ailments. Christians need not shun medicine. Medicine that causes us worse problems or brings bondage have to be used carefully. And with biblical wisdom and prudence, medicine that was unethically made, uh, the use of it needs to be thought through very carefully so as not to afflict the conscience of the user or anybody else. But medicine is a mercy of God to be used to alleviate suffering. Jesus healed many who were physically suffering. He, just, he didn't just heal their, their souls. He healed their bodies and their eyes and their bones. Um, Paul did as well. Jesus and Paul did not tell people to live by faith and accept their physical ailment as their lot in life. Live by faith. Accept that. They did not tell them that uh, that to seek some sort of alleviation from this ailment is to reject God's will for your life. No, they said, learn contentment and take a little wine for your stomach. Learn contentment. You may suffer the rest of your life, but take a little wine for your frequent ailments. A little wine, notice it says. A little wine. Not a lot of wine, right? Medication and medicines and wine are, are, can lead to bondage. They become a god that you serve. That should not happen. And I think that's why Paul inserts that one little word, little. A little wine. Um, how does this connect to what precedes it regarding elders? Perhaps the Apostle Paul, knowing the tender conscience of Timothy, is not wanting him to become, uh, I think, overly dogmatic about his previous commands in this letter, one of which was not to be addicted to wine, right? The elder is not to be addicted to wine. Some would read that and immediately make the extra-biblical injunction that the elder must completely abstain from wine. No. No, that, that is how the Pharisees would interpret such a command. Rather, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy that he is to be prudent, he is to be wise, he is to be godly, for bodily discipline is only of little profit. So the verse could be an example of pastoral prudence. 
He's reminding Timothy and the church in Ephesus that elders are to be honored, to be paid, to be held in the, to the same investigatory standard as all, to be rebuked before all, to be impartial, to be wise in choosing elders, and to be an example of godly moderation. A little wine. One last thought, returning to the Holy Spirit's admonition to rebuke sinful pastors and elders in the presence of all. There's a legitimate sense in which much discipline, formal discipline, should take place in private. I mean, obviously, both for the sake of the sinner and for the sake of those attempting discipline. Without this kind of confidentiality, trust is shattered and gossip would be an overwhelming temptation. On the other hand, here is scripture commending to us the public rebuke of pastors and elders. We should not think ourselves, then, therefore, more holy than God, right? And therefore decide to go in a different way when it comes to our pastors. Often, for pastors, think of this, often for pastors who are being defrocked, removed from office, the last righteous thing they may do before repentance may be providing an opportunity for the righteousness of God and the purity of the church to be demonstrated through their rebuke publicly. It may be the last godly thing that man is able to do. Of course, they probably don't see it like that. Um, but those bringing the discipline should. Um, we should care about such things. We, we should care about the purity of the church in the name of God. That's why we practice discipline. Um, and if sinners will not repent and bring glory to him, then discipline will glorify God. We'll bring the glory to God one way or the other. Then discipline will bring honor to him and lead us all, all of us, to fear sinning. I wonder if we try to make everything too tidy, right? Too respectful of men. We're too partial to men and not partial enough to God and his commands. That dishonors God. Let's pray. Father, we pray and thank you for this epistle that teaches us how to, how to organize, how to rule, how to discipline in your church. And thank you for bringing us back once again to this theme. I pray that we would learn. Uh, repetition is often the way that we learn. And so, Father, I pray that these, these scriptures would settle in, that they would form us as individuals, as a church, as a body, as a presbytery, as a denomination. Father, I pray that, that, uh, that you would be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.